0: Welcome back. You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinist by machinist. I'm your host Dylan Jackson from Proteum Machining, and this week I am joined by two past guests and hosts of m- probably my favorite new podcast, Incremental, uh, Devin Bedoni and Uriel Eisen. welcome, guys. Hey, hey. Thanks for having us. Favorite of course. podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, you guys. You guys talk about a lot of things that like I don't think about super often and so it's really nice weekly to kind of be reminded like oh yeah start like thinking this way too like in addition to you know head down making parts it's like there's a lot left to think about at the end of the day
1: yeah I think honestly that's why we started it as well is because we needed our own reminder (laughs) to not just put our heads (laughs) down and actually think about it so yeah it's been good definitely that's
0: great well Ariel you were on fairly recently but Devin since the last time you were on you've added I think employees and machinery.
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh, decent little bit of both. Um, let's see. Added a Takasawa lathe. Added, I think we had just bought the second brother S700, but just recently got um, the brother R450. Added an automatic saw, a bunch of little stuff like uh, uh, a screw air compressor laser marking we got our kind of our tumbling setup going um and then a lot of you know little stuff like or an actual uh you know cabinet for organizing tooling and you know a bunch of bunch of small kind of accessory stuff um but yeah the big the big ticket items were the uh the takasawa lathe and the and the r450 well
0: congrats that's awesome
1: it's been fun the wild ride um Yeah. You just kind of (laughs) like, just hold on and don't let go and hope
0: everything's pointed in the right
1: direction. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's definitely small business ownership kind of rolled into one right there.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, two employees, um, one started, I guess it's been about a year and a half ago now. Well, actually she started like two years ago, but just part-time for about like, I think eight months, um, while she finished up a school program and another part-time job and then she came on full time. And that was pretty awesome. It was just uh, her and I for about a year. And then just this last Thanksgiving, added a second employee. Um, we were talking about that being kind of like a slow ramp part time deal, but pretty, it was, I think it was like three weeks. And I was like, okay, you should just be here. <laughs> uh, and he's been super awesome as well.
0: And past machining experience, I assume. Um, then?
1: No, not really. Neither of them. Um, so Ariel, the first employee, she had a lot of restaurant experience. Um, she's kind of generally mechanically inclined, but not a lot of like to, like power tool experience, I guess you'd say. Um, actually, the the school program she was in uh, when she started was a car mechanics certificate. Oh. Um, yeah. Oh, so like Yeah, she's got like a general, um, you know, Knowledge of mechanics, hand tools, kind of like how things fit together, um, but no machining experience. And then uh, Corum, the new guy, has a lot of woodworking experience. Like, uh, actually, pretty. He's he's pretty young, but very talented woodworker. Um, and then we met through bikes. And back before I took work seriously, <laughs> <laughs> and thought I was going to be a bike frame builder um he would hang out in the shop and kind of tinker and help me with little stuff here and there um and like started teaching himself to weld and you know would mess around a little bit on different machines um so his kind of like general cnc knowledge is a lot less than ariel's at this point he's much more comfortable on the manual machines i'd say um so i can kind of like task him with uh simple manual machine projects when needed um and he's really good at like just general like carpentry so like the first couple months he was with us we were doing a lot of changes in the shop getting ready for uh bringing in the new machine and so it was easy to be like okay build a shelf there okay we need a uh a food snack station there like push that wall back and put in a counter and he's you know very capable of that stuff which is pretty helpful not every day but when you need it you need it so
0: yeah that's great and keeps you on programming and setup and all that stuff
1: yeah, that's the hope.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. I mean, you kind of mentioned the R four hundred and fifty. Let's just jump into the questions. Uh, Joe from Cover Frame Building was asking about bar feeding the R four hundred and fifty. Uriel and I have talked about that when he was on. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Is that something you guys are both thinking about implementing? And then he kind of wanted <laughs> to also, you know, talk more about Park Gripper workflow for high mix, low volume, which you've been doing a lot, Devin.
1: Yeah. Um, I am not planning to bar feed the R450, at least not yet. Um, I think, you know, Ariel and I talk a lot about, and we, I think we have an interesting perspective coming from, um, you know, his is a pretty low mix shop, I would say, mm-hmm. you know, a handful of dedicated parts. Mine is a fairly high mix. Um, so I think the constraints around bar feeding probably will mean that I, I'm not going to pursue that, um. Also, I like to, as much as possible, have my jobs be able to run on any of the three machines that we have. Um, so trying to maintain as much consistency in setups across the board is something I strive for. So I'm I'm not probably going to pursue bar feeding, at least unless we get, you know, move shops into some larger space and get some crazy contract or something.
2: Yeah, right now, trying to bar feed that machine
1: where it is in your shop would be uh <laughs> impractical yeah. at best no the bar would definitely like just pierce the lathe <laughs> <laughs> About yeah. three and a half feet apart
0: oh boy
2: although i feel like with a gripper okay. you could bar pull onto the table and not need a bar feeder that yeah. was one thing i didn't quite understand why you'd need a bar feeder for that whole setup
1: oh uh-huh yeah that's saves true. you like 30k or something like that yeah, that'd be nice you just yeah all you need is like some of those cheap like in feed saw racks <laughs> yeah, exactly and make sure no one kicks them <laughs> yeah. while it's don't touch this <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah i guess yeah I, I think that. it was more of the bar storage than anything that the uh, yeah. bar feeder enables you yeah probably if you want to run overnight run like 10 bars yeah
2: that yeah, said exactly. um i've been looking at robots and there's a five thousand dollar six thousand dollar scara robot and that um in conjunction with an auto saw is a lot more flexible um and so that
1: that's something to keep in mind <laughs> yeah yeah you just gotta figure out oh, how to like time your auto saw so that it matches your cycle time it isn't just like over overloading the scara with a bunch of work
2: yeah totally yeah but even if you uh integrate the inefficiency of of carrying the stock from the saw over to the scarrow robot like that gets you less management and then the next step of setting up a saw at the machine
1: yeah that's oh you're triggered. talking about carrying i uh, gotcha i gotcha oh I either thought, way yeah, but i just feel like it would be pretty slick to have a saw just mated to a machine definitely and a robot and it just spits out one yeah and puts it that's in the definitely the long-term dream yeah
2: because the other thing is yeah. there's no like bar feeding an r450 think about it more after looking at that robot um it, it, it's not actually great because if you can run like a cheap saw right next to the machine that feeds into a robot um, that is much more cost efficient, right? And, and you're not, you're not adding the cycle time of parting off your part in the machine. So I think the advantage of doing the part off in the R450 instead of right outside in an auto saw would be, uh, potentially part holding, right? You would waste, like you could, you could get really good holding even on really weird small parts without, um, just way oversizing your stock. But besides that, I think pushing it to the outside of the cabinet has its advantages like yeah. cycle time. Well, and you could take advantage of both pallets. <laughs> that is a very good point. Yeah. Right. And yeah. do all your loading you do lose on one. the other side and take your time with like chip clearing and seating the part properly and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about with the R450 mounting a laser in the cabinet and the like operator side. Because it's all fully located, and so if you wanted to do like deep etching, I thought that would be super cool to pallet change like you'd have to blow off the parts it didn't have coolant, but then you could etch right in the vice before unloading.
0: Did you ever figure out, Devin, I think we were talking that you can can you slow down the fourth axis turning or the like the pallet changer, which I guess is technically the fourth axis uh, oh yeah weren't yeah, we the ones like, talking about that
1: uh, like manually when
0: you're no, like, like just... I th- we were I think we were talking about slowing down or maybe it was maybe I'm thinking of Andrew. One somebody with an R series, I was talking to them about slowing down the palette change.
1: I would think so. I mean, you can adjust the parameters for all your other rapids, and it's driven by the rapid override. Um, So if like you have your rapids on four, the palette change happens slower. So I would think it would just be one of those.
0: (laughs) What's that? Which is nice, especially if you're palette changing and stuff that was technically too big.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah i did learn uh a little bit about that <laughs> oh <Uh-oh. laughs> do tell uh so they the machines come with the or, or they have the option of the expanded jig area they call it it t- takes the swing on the r450 from a thousand oh, from a meter to 1100 millimeters um which you know doesn't sound like a whole lot, but you know it's an extra two inches on the radius, effectively ten percent. Yeah, it's it's a good piece. Um, it basically means that you can hang your your work holding pretty far off of the table. Um, the R four fifty is a cool machine because it. Um, I mean, it's very compact physically, like on the floor. Although I, <laughs> I will say, I sold it to my, uh, I sold it to my employees as being like this this little. <laughs> You know, dainty thing that wasn't going to take up any space in the <laughs> shop, and then it's all relative. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. Uh, I, I'm standing by the fact that the the square footage is small, but it has a, a large presence. It's like it's very tall. Anyway, for, um, for two
0: tables, it is a small machine, but like for two I know tables, the F600 yeah. is kind of based on that same thing, and like compared to an S700, it is significantly deeper. Yeah, And like mm-hmm. a little bit narrower, but not terribly. I think the 450 is a little narrower than the F600. But still, it's like yeah, it, you don't really realize how deep that machine is until it's like in your, your shop. And you're like, oh, okay, that's a lot of floor space.
1: Yeah, it's deep and it's just tall. So it's kind of imposing. You walk up to it and it's like, ooh. <laughs> um, but it's a cool machine. The, the work envelope obviously is pretty small. Uh, but assuming you can, you're not trying to do a bunch of parts at once and your parts are relatively small, Um, You actually get a lot of table space to work with. So each pallet is just under 24 inches wide. Um, So you get about four feet of total X kind of table to work with. And then with the expanded jig area, you can hang, uh, I think it's about an additional three inches off of both sides. With, with whatever it is, so long as it doesn't extend past that radius and doesn't extend too high to swing under the, the opening in the divider wall. Um, so it's a cool machine for that reason. Um,
0: and I'm guessing from the foreshadowing, you didn't get the extended jig option?
1: No, I did get the extended <laughs> jig option.
0: Um, oh, and you were even past that.
1: I did, yeah. But then, so I, I went to... Uh, hang the fourth off the table because we needed space to do the first kind of job that we were running on it um and so i started like manually jogging it around to check for clearance and it totally just was gonna just smash into the z-axis or i guess it's actually the y-axis way cover that like rolling um it's not oh, yeah. an accordion but it's like that funny slack
0: Chainmail almost or something. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> the chainmail way cover. Yeah. Um, it was just gonna smack the hell into it. And I was like, what is wrong here? And we'd had this issue uh when they were setting it up where when they do the expanded jig area, they add these little wings onto the center divider to like take up the extra opening mm-hmm. to keep stuff from spraying through. And they were clipping on the little rivets on that thing. Um oh geez. Yeah, it was super strange. And the guy was like, ah, oh, the the person setting it up was like, I don't know what's going on with this. Um, you should probably just trim them down. And I was kind of like, that doesn't seem right. But what This is brand
0: new. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: we did trim them down because we're like, well, I guess that's the only option. Um, and then it was it was like a, a series of a few things. So we did that. We trimmed them down. And then I did the move the fourth. And it was totally just going to full on. Just hard parts smack, and uh, I called. I called up my salesperson. I was like, "What is going on? Is there something wrong with this machine? Like, was it assembled incorrectly?" Um, and I was in the car. I was running to the bank, and like as I was driving home, I, this light bulb went off. And for anybody who's ever looked at that machine, there's this like weird cutout in the chainmail thing, in the chainmail weight cover. And I was I looked at it for years and been like, "Why did just in demo videos or whatever?" I've been like, "What is that about? Like, what purpose could that possibly serve?" Um, it turns out that when the x-axis is centered, and the y-axis is all the way back, that cutout allows for the expanded jig area to clear
0: um <laughs> yeah but it's such a brother thing like it's such a brother we, thing. we've made the stars align so that everything works but just barely
1: <laughs> yeah just barely but because we get there so fast it doesn't matter <laughs> right so um, you're
0: using because there's a parameter that will send it to a safe location for a pallet change right
1: exactly yeah and like if you don't have that option that is like the back right corner which is also kind of the tool change position like if you're going to manually change tools at the right. side door yeah um So, yeah, interestingly, the people I was talking with at Yamazin didn't really know how to change it. I kind of had to figure it out myself and uh, Hmm. then sent them the parameters back. I was like, next time you do one of these, here's what you need to do. Yeah, because you
0: can also send it to a tool uh, loading location as well. Yeah, yeah, which is pretty slick. Yeah, Yeah, it's cool. It, It was really frustrating. We had the M series at my last job. And I really wanted to use that, too, because, you know, if the heads, the Y is all the way back, the head is like six feet back from the operator door on the M series. And it's like, can I have it come here? And they're like, no, it seems like it's only enabled for the R series. Weird. It's such a missed opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, super missed.
1: It is interesting running those machines. Like, I feel like I get just a little bit of a window into what it would be like to run a machine with a big, um, uh you know like tool matrix or something where you can't actually see them ma- the tools because i feel like on the mm. s series we get kind of spoiled where you just like peek through the window and you're like that tool that tool that tool they're all in there right and on the true. r series like half of them you can't see from any door at any one time um, yeah it's the so. same with
0: the f i can only see i think maybe six in front and then everything else is on the chain up behind the machine
1: yeah so it's kind of a good it's kind of a good way to start working out that workflow, making sure you have your tool management dialed pretty good.
0: Well, so the other half of Joe's question was about pros and (laughs) cons of a pallet changer machine. And, you know, because I had some cons for sure with our Spark Changer, but I will say a lot, not a lot of the cons, but a a few big cons that we have with the Spark Changer are solved by the R series. So like Uh you can actually, like you said, jog your pallet changer and check for clearances where the kitty was hydraulic i think uh hmm. or or like there, there was no speed on it it was just a hundred percent so like we would cut out cardboard cutouts oh, of whatever large thing we were loading in there <laughs> and then like tape them to the bed and then just see if they whipped <laughs> into the side of the machine <laughs> when we pallet changed And it was like yeah that okay clear that, that'll idea. be fine
1: yeah that's yeah. terrifying um,
0: um and then also you don't have to worry about uh the clamping studs on your pallets ever getting fouled up with chips because it's never unclamped it's it's just on yeah. a rotary
1: yeah yeah there is a brake but there's no studs and it doesn't lift um i don't know if the like it's physically awkward to proof a program just cuz you have to kind of like lean in over the other pallet um right pretty, well that was that's different big on the 600 downside. 650 right yeah yeah the 650 has the control at the side so yeah. that's that's removed right. Um, so that's kind of like, I, I wouldn't, if you were strictly prototyping, this is not the machine probably, although there's some arguments to be made for all that table space and keeping multiple, you know, uh, fixturing options set up, but, um, that's probably better handled in a zero point or something, a zero point or a 1000 or something like that. Um, that's. So far, that's kind of the only downside I can see. I guess there's a part height limit, uh, but it's pretty significant. I think you get 12 inches from the table uh, of, like, Z clearance to swing underneath the divider wall. Um,
2: it, does, any...
1: it does seem like in a
2: like purely prototyping environment, it would really not be ideal. Because yeah. you'd be, like, trying to figure out if it can swing.
1: Yeah, it's one know. of those. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things. Like, when I got the first S series People are like, that's not a prototype machine. It's kind of like, well, it does the things that a prototype <laughs> machine does. It's just yeah. in an enclosure and it's quick. Um, running this machine, I am like, yeah, it's not an ideal prototype machine. Like visibility is limited. It's a little bit more awkward physically to proof a program. Um, there's more to like chips hang up in more places. There's more to clean kind of things like that. Um, but aside from that. You've also been that, running
0: some higher volumes though in there, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I will say one thing about it is like, uh, again, kind of coming back to like refining your processes, um, on a standard VMC, you know, you open the door pretty often and kind of get a chance to check in with things like the health of your tools, odd bit, odd things that might be happening in the enclosure, something out of place on the R series. Like you only really ever interact with, the palette that's not being cut. Um, and, you know, assuming something doesn't sound awful, it's, and you don't notice it in your part, you're not going to notice that something's going wrong. Um, it's kind of terrifying, especially with such a productive machine. Yeah. Yeah. No, (laughs) it can, it can make scrap pretty quick. Um, so yeah, we are running some higher volume stuff right now, uh, like thousand piece run. I mean, it's, it's six part numbers, but they're all identical fixturing, identical tooling. Um, so it's it's a big, it's a big job. Um, let's see. I don't, yeah, I don't know if there's a lot of downsides. I think if you are doing anything from 20 piece to thousand piece, it probably is in, well, 20 piece to thousand piece, 20 piece if your part, or if your cycle time is like, I don't know, 10 or 20 minutes or more. But like, if you have a job that's gonna run for a day, Um, I don't think the setup would be any, any more significant on an R series than an S series. And it will absolutely run it faster, like hands, hands away faster.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah.
2: Because of the actual speed of machine or
1: no, just because of the the, setup. uh, It's really not even the, like, I mean, it's just the fact that you don't have to arrive exactly when the cycle ends. So that is nice. It's really nice. Yeah. so like there's this there's the palette change part which is fantastic like just in like the speed of the palette change but the more the Mm. more important thing in my shop is not is just not having the the next thing is ready to run yeah and you can get to it at any point
2: in that cycle time
1: yeah so like if you had an s series or any vmc with a person parked in front of it, it you'd probably come close to keeping up you know, mm-hmm. there would be the time delay of actually changing your part on the table. But I think the bigger benefit is just that you don't have to park somebody there.
0: When I imagine it allows you to have a little bit more complex fixtures, like I feel like we're constantly playing that game of like, do I put the extra clamp, but then knowing that it's going to take me an extra 20 seconds to take it on and off, whereas like on the R you're like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like the machine's running. Like, yeah. Why, why not make the, the fixture at as the best it can be, you know, kind of thing
1: there's yeah i mean it's a little column a a little column b because like you know we're doing this thousand part run and it was like okay this is gonna be five thousand screw unscrew cycles to get these parts done like that's let's <laughs> let's make sure these are the right screws and let's make it as as efficient as possible but also yes like those parts that we're running right now are pretty um like a little bit of a labor intensive um part changeover and it did make it you know you can do it not rushed and not worry about your cycle time increasing so that was a is a big benefit
2: yeah and i
1: i would say like
2: yeah, for sure <clears throat> looking at an arm machine i think for prototyping again probably doesn't make a ton of sense but like that's probably going to be our next machine and not only for the obvious reasons of like a pallet changes so you can i don't know higher spindle uptime. um i think because of the traveling column Uh, It gives you a lot more flexibility long-term in terms of um, automation, in terms of like bar feeding the machine or bar pulling onto the table. I think something really exciting to look at is also um, automating an R450 or an R650. Uh, You have all that time, like right, like typically if you watch a robot loading, like tending a VMC, you have quite a bit of time with the door open because the robots are pretty slow Mm -hmm. um, just relative to a person. Um, And so like doing a pallet change to that position where the spindle's running, like you could do all of these checks, QC checks, or, you know, making sure there's no chips, just all sorts of stuff. Like thinking about getting a (coughs) robot on one of those is
1: pretty appealing. Yeah. That's pretty high on my list. I'd say at at some point, not tomorrow, but at some
0: (laughs) point. Well, and I imagine for you, Uriel, like you would be able to set up, you know, two or three part numbers, Permanently, pretty much. Like depending on the palette, like you can I mean, have two two fourth axis on there, right. and have you know buckles on one, and like you know pretty much all of your stuff set up and ready to go.
2: Yeah, I mean, if I could, that would be living the dream for sure. <laughs>
1: yeah, definitely. I guess the other uh, question there was the uh, gripper stuff. Not yeah. All so 50. how are you
0: handling high mix, low volume stuff with the gripper? Because it seems from the outside like that would be a difficult strategy to apply to a high mix workflow
1: yeah at first blush it does um and yeah ariel and i had probably six or eight months of conversations (laughs) before we kind of like uh zeroed in on a solution um i think it's important to back up and not not fixate on like not look at what's holding the the end actuator so much as being the lim- limiting factor because at the end of the day um, or the end of arm tooling or whatever, at the end of the day, kind of like a robot's a robot. And then there's just a set of variables of like, where's your stock? How's it situated? And how do you, you know, increment and pick up and stuff. And so I think if you stop thinking about it as being very distinct, then it, it, pretty quickly becomes clear that like the problems that you have to solve are more or less the same problems, whether it's a robot or your spindle. Um, I think, and then like, look, so like if you, if you take that sort of out of the equation um, and then looking at the systems more broadly, whether you're looking at high mix or, or, uh, or low mix, um, there's like a couple pros and cons, I'd say. Of the two systems, regardless of what your mix is or your volume, um, the pro, or I guess maybe I'll start with the cons. Basically, the cons of the gripper system in my mind are space. Basically, you're limited by your travel, um, and then a big one that no one really talks about that is just that it's extremely powerful. <laughs> um, so, like that's true a robot crash i don't think is going to destroy your vmc for most of the robots you know people sort of in our sphere would be looking at whereas like when the z-axis with a spindle gripper crashes like it's a legit crash Um,
2: until you use 3d printed fingers (laughs) right
0: (laughs) which are pretty great yeah yes Um, mechanical fuses are the best yeah
1: yeah mechanical fusing exactly um so let's see. Are there any other cons that I'm missing here? Well,
2: I, I think just knowing Joe and talking to him a good bit, um, the, the comparison you didn't hit is to humans loading the machine, right? Ah, so like, sure. how do you think about using a spindle gripper on, on sort of low volume, high mix mm-hmm. as it relates to just programming it and having a person
1: load the machine? Gotcha. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I think it comes again. It like comes back to that uh, pacing issue. Of, um, you know, basically just walkway time. So, I, I noticed that the parts that we run on that, even though we're generally so with our with our high mix system, we run ten parts per cycle, regardless of the size of part. We're not trying to adapt for like optimum efficiency of space on the table. We're just trying to say, okay, we're going to get ten parts per cycle, sort of regardless, um, and that's going to be a big a big win
2: um <clears throat> big win there is you sacrifice efficiency in the machine to efficiency at the programming and
1: implementing the gripper right well and a big win in terms of how often a, a person yeah. has to come to the machine and how many parts are done per cycle and then so then the, the comparison would be high density fixturing right but <clears throat> the, the and the big win there for the gripper over high density fixturing is uh finger time i guess so like uh, tightening, loosening screws, placing stock. Um, Finger time. Is that a
2: industry standard? I don't know if it's an industry. That's an, <laughs> that's an
1: Andy statement. Oh, I like it like, though. Yeah, yeah no, it's good. like it very quickly zeros in on what the issue is. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, well, and so having done more specifically, though, like, yeah. so are you standardizing on pieces of stock and then saying anything that comes through quoting that fits in this stock runs on this machine? And are you just leaving that machine set up for finger gripping high vault or high mix? Or how does that all work? Cause like, I think when I look at it, I'm like, well, A, like you said, space wise, you pretty much have to have three parts worth of space for every part that you're making. Cause like, you know, before stock machining location and after machining location for it to sit
1: Mm, and then on mm -hmm. top
0: of it it's like how do i how do i take parts coming into my shop and make sure that they're a good fit so are you standardizing on one size stock or you know a few that the gripper can can hold how did you determine that yeah
1: no i um i tried to make it more adaptable than that so the macro that runs runs the gripper program is um is parameter driven so I just said, if it's within a certain envelope on quarter inch increments. So basically when we set up a job, we just say, this is, um, you know, two inches wide by three and a quarter long. And then the tray has just pinholes that you move, you move dowel pins for your different size stocks on those increments. So you can't do like a three and an eighth inch piece, but you can do three or three and a quarter. So like small sacrifice there in terms of stock, um, utilization. Um, And then when you enter in those values in the macro, it adjusts the pick and place uh, pickup or the location for the pick and place um, automatically. So I guess not to to get too much into the weeds, but the way um, both Ariel and I kind of started with a macro set that came from Yamazen from who knows when somebody, I'm sure, wrote it someday at some factory and then it became the standard. So we started with that it's kind of like a master macro with uh i think three or four sub programs
2: i forget what it started with yeah
1: it's it's like um it's like a go-to pick and then it's like a a go-to place
2: yeah and the way they break they broke that out was kind of odd like some stuff was in the master program some stuff was in the
1: yeah anyway we we started with that we both refined ours separately um and you know adjusted as as we wanted to but basically so those the they like the go to pick the go to place they all just are driven by parameters that you input in that master macro um so that's you know it's actually it's like a few minutes basically to update it for a new part size and then for the space issue um i don't put anything back on the tray so you don't have to have you're not having to have three uh you know, basically tripling up your space requirement on the table. So I have a stock, I have a stock tray. And then the way I'm handling it right now, I I still need to update it, but there just hasn't been enough time. The way I'm handling it right now is that parts get picked to the vice. You run op one parts, get picked out of the vice and just dumped in a little bin by the gripper. And then right now we do a manual flip back onto the, the dowel pins on spacers, so they're hanging on the top hat, um, and the actual part just hangs in in negative space below. And we still pick on the top hat, so op two part gets picked, placed in the vice, and then grippers done. And the fourth axis, the vice is on the fourth axis. It flips over, and blasts the part out into a little bin with air. So that's kind of how we handle the space issue of not having to triple it up on the table.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. How, how are you preventing parts from digging each other coming out of the vise after up to
1: it? It hasn't been too much of an issue. Um, I kind of anticipated it would be a problem. Um, it hasn't been I wouldn't do like, you know, super high value parts that way. I don't think um, I actually that's not totally true. I had one where it was being an issue. I put a bunch of rubber in the bin. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> so they didn't bang around as much. And that solved it. Yeah, that's all that nice for that particular part. I think it could vary somewhat. Um, The goal would be to go to a double vice system, double gripper, I think at this point and a flip station. So you're only really handling the part from the tray to the vice to flip station to second vice and then second gripper with 3D printed fingers to pick the finished part out and then probably to a bin as well.
2: And on an R four fifty, you can get parts out every cycle.
1: Yeah, because they would go back to the the other pallet.
2: Potentially that nifty. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah that or would you be could great. go over to a shoot or something that goes out of the
1: machine because it's a traveling column. Yeah, right? there's Lots of options there. Tons of fun ideas. <clears throat> um, so I would say, like, yes, in theory, we edit every part that that we get that fits in that envelope goes on the gripper. But in reality, it's still a decently small percentage of our work kind of varies depending on what we get. Like right now we have a ton of work. Most of it's just, just simply too big to be handled that way. Um, and then the way we handle different stock sizes is we just have pre-cut jaws on those quarter inch increments or fingers, I should say, and jaws for op one gripper Um, fingers and vice jaws. Yeah. Sorry. Gripper fingers and vice jaws. Um, for so the different I assume increments. that you're
0: not keeping this machine set up for that workflow then if you like currently no. don't have any work that'll fit it. So how, how long is your, you know, speaking of like SMED, how long yeah. is your setup for this kind of workflow? Is the grippers always in there or, you know, how do you, how do you break it down? How do you set it back up reliably and quickly?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, there's a long way to go. Honestly, it could be a lot better, but I think it's probably about a half hour. Um,
0: well, that's not bad at all.
1: No, <clears throat> for the hardware, and then there's the you know the the setup that would be with any part of like proofing it and cutting jaws and stuff, but that would happen regardless. Um, it might be less than a half an hour, honestly. So right now, the way we handle it is our tray goes onto one of the Delta pallet systems on an orange vice, so that's just um, you know swapping the jaw carriers for the Delta pallet carriers and then probing the tray. And that, <clears throat> and then the vice itself uh, is on our is always on our trunnion on the fourth axis, and so that's an established work coordinate system that we just keep set up. Um, so that's just like swapping vice on the on the rock lock and pl- and plugging in some hoses. So that's pretty straightforward. And then we usually just have to bolt the two bins to the table. Um, that's so, not bad at all. No, That's no, really, it's pretty quick. And then, yeah. honestly, the most time-consuming part of it is if we are changing stock sizes, is moving all the pins <laughs> in the tray. Um, and really, the only reason—and I don't have a good solution for this yet—but really, the only reason that part isn't is challenging is because you have to blow chips out of the other holes. Otherwise, it'd be pretty quick. Uh-huh. So yeah, R four fifty will solve up, that. Yeah. yeah. Huh.
0: All right. So I had a couple of questions that I came up with because I think you guys talk you're great at talking about improvements you're currently doing uh but i would like to talk kind of about improvements that maybe did not go that great so what's the most yeah. money or time you've sunk into an improvement that didn't pay off
2: uh one that comes immediately to mind maybe it's not the most but it's still still sore <laughs> um, uh, i was trying to print over wi-fi with a uh, with octoprint Mm -hmm. and it did not go well at all. It was meant to be an easy setup. Um, I probably spent about 12 hours on it total, finally got it working, and then uh, the other day it stopped working. (laughs) And at this point, it's like, I don't know. (laughs) We'll see it all. (laughs) That said, after I got it working, I realized I do all my CAD at one end of the shop, and then the 3D printer is currently at the other end of the shop. And so this would be a good example of improving the transportation method of going from like sneaker net to Wi-Fi, when instead I could just decrease the need for transportation by moving the 3D printer near the CAD computer, um, right. and then just plugging it in with a like you know either USB or directly to the computer <laughs> or um, going Ethernet to a switch or something. So that is one that. I, you know, I don't know if I would do something differently in the future. I'm not really sure, but it really did not pan out at all.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm thinking for myself. <clears throat> uh, Ariel was talking on on our podcast a couple weeks ago about how to, uh, an incomplete improvement <laughs> is nothing but waste. So mm-hmm. in on the gripper front, I uh, currently have about $12,000 in shunk vices and a lot of material for... New trunnions that is just sitting there because I haven't had time to Ouch. to implement the system. So yeah, that that kind of hurts right now. <laughs> I think
0: a lot of people can empathize with that. I have a, a shelf of half finished projects or boxes of big master orders that you know still haven't materialized.
2: Yeah, yeah, same. Um, I think one thing we've been moving to, which I think has already sort of borne fruit, is kind of just a whipboard so just being a little bit more diligent about like are we truly done with this improvement or does it still need a little bit more work because <laughs> oftentimes they get to like 80 or 90 percent where they are delivering value but they're still like not amazing and then so just th- that's that been helpful already and we're not fully switched over to like I don't know we reference it daily but it's not um we haven't made like any explicit rules around it so much but it does help that they're actually like persistently on there (laughs) instead of just out of,
1: you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, Yeah. I don't know if we've had any like major fails in our shop. Um, I think the biggest issue for us has just been like false starts more than anything that, yeah, like, like that. I I wouldn't say this is a false start, but incomplete, incomplete project. I've had quite a few of those just kind of like hang uh, and they're just like, yeah, something you have to think about, bunch of money yeah. tied up.
2: I would say for me, um, another kind of category of of poorly directed improvements. I think when I started doing this, I did a lot more kind of flashy things where I'd have an idea and then chase it. And they often were improvements, but they, like an example, like the same example, 3D printing, right? I could have moved the 3D printer and that's a lot simpler than doing anything else. And that should have been there should have been some process in thinking about all the potential, um, fixes to, to, you know, some noticed issue. Uh, And I think we've been doing more and more sort of like actual process around thinking through a bunch of different potential improvements uh, to a particular problem. And then sort of thinking about like easy ways of testing them and, and kind of moving through it, maybe a little bit more slowly, but a little bit less, uh, rework, I guess. Or, you know, I think it's easy at the beginning to go like, oh, shiny new toy. Yes, please. I'll go buy something cool. Right. And yeah, that money a will fix my problems.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I gotcha. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get on to Alex Kern's question, because I think you guys brought it up. But real quick, I'll share mine are. Uh, we bought a 85 Kitamura before we bought our old brother, the TC. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And we were like, oh, we'll we'll fix it up and use it and that'll be great and then it sat in our shop for six months before we sold it after spending probably an entire two or three days taking it apart to clean it oh yeah and so that was like you know three or four grand to buy the machine and ship it down to us and then all the time taking it apart and then absolutely no benefit from it oh, yeah yeah that's right. Uh, our piston compressor that we bought like we bought one of those whisper piston compressors uh between our first compressor and our now uh Eaton compressor and it was neither quiet it, it was a good <laughs> compressor but it was not quiet like it just it was quieter than like our you know uh it was probably like a husky compressor or something that we had or Ingersoll. but like it didn't for the money we spent on it we should have just saved like a little bit extra and bought a screw compressor right off the bat hmm.
1: yeah that totally. was
0: incredibly frustrating i mean and then, years
2: back At this point, I remember spending days of research and then buying bits and putting them together to avoid buying an air dryer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then I bought an air dryer. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I guess if we, if we turn the lens back a few years, there's a lot of things I'd probably rather not talk about. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Certainly bought my fair share of uh, machines I shouldn't have that I then sold at a loss. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then I'd say my last one that I sunk a lot of money and time into was our orange subplate for S700. And it was great for putting the vices on and not having to indicate them. But like the whole reason we went down that route was to do what we're doing. We're starting to do with our laying now and like having a actual master location to go off of. Yeah. And so we spent all this time, you know, I built a a vacuum plate that fit it and I built a, a adapter for a fourth and all this. And it's like, no, I'm having to remake all of this stuff again and it's like ugh, why wasn't that a good option in the end the way that it works there's not like like with laying the center of four studs is the center is the the zero point you know it is mm-hmm. a true ZPS a zero zero point system where with the orange the way that the pins worked in this the single or double-sided actuation there was no concrete place you could measure a zero point off of so like I I would either have to make a reference palette for every location and then set that in my control and and, you know cam and all of that and backfeed all that information or uh, you know what we ended up doing was just not really following through with that because it just it was just too much work yeah not a good solution yeah but i mean it works like if we were running our own part with uh palettes or something it repeat it repeated great like it was just not the solution, I, I did a poor job of both communicating my needs when I bought it and doing my research into what it actually worked as, and then mm-hmm. what, you know, it took me probably two years to figure out what the hell I was doing. And by that point I was like, oh, Interesting. all right, a lot of time and money into this. Yeah,
2: yeah I have a f- funny example that reminds me of our own zero point, I don't know if saga maybe is an overstatement. <laughs> um. I got a screaming deal on a bunch of shunk zero-point stuff. And so that's what we're running, and it is so convenient and so fast and repeats extremely well. Um, because we bought it used, and it was cheaper than Lang would have been, so it was like kinda hard to say no, but the some of the chucks um, have a little relief cut into them so they have a locating pin so if you only want to use one locating stud or like pull down stud it then has a second little pin that sort of indexes for rotation if that makes sense um, mm-hmm. because we bought it used ours are not that type and so you need to have two studs in a pallet. which for the size stuff we're doing is kind of annoying and those studs are i forget the price they're quite expensive um and so then your total palette ends up being big heavy and expensive and the other piece for us it's not been an issue but if i was setting up a prototyping machine i would not want to sacrifice that much z um like i think a lang just makes a lot more sense especially if it's for things where you're not really switching out palettes regularly you're more set uh switching out like work holding solutions so whether that's like switching to a vice to run a job or switching to you could even switch to a shunk hold down um for you know for pallet changing because for pallet changing i mean they're really quite nice but anyway so i think we got sort of the wrong thing because it was very inexpensive and i'm not sure that the cost savings was worth it
0: gotcha Yeah. yeah that could be tough for sure All right. So Alex Kern, you you guys brought it up. Alex Kern asked, what do you do to maintain worthy improvements said differently? Are there systems, documentation, et cetera, that show potential future employees what improvements are and why they exist? And so you brought up a work in progress board, which is great. But do you guys do any further documentation or way of communicating that?
2: Yeah. So that's been actually a big focus in our shop because um, as the team grows, even not future employees but current employees if one person sort of runs one station typically day to day and makes a lot of improvements there's no feedback and there's no sort of yeah like you said like why is this now the way we do it and what is the current method um so it's something we've been thinking a lot about um the training videos have been good because they're very quick to make and then they're just available if you ever need them Um, but i think we're going to start doing more sops standard operating procedures um trying to figure out exactly what that looks like and exactly how we build that into our workflow so that they actually happen reliably. Um, Yeah, basically innovation is outstripping documentation in our (laughs) our shop and it's (laughs) uh, it's becoming an issue. Um, The other thing which is interesting to read about and just talking to different people about solutions is as you add detail to an SOP, it becomes uh, like less of a reference document for people who actually know how to do it. But the second it's no longer a reference document, if someone else makes an update, uh, that doesn't tend to propagate because you're basically running off of like memory instead of continually referencing some sort of uh, documents. And so it seems like what other people do and have success with is kind of uh, having like two or three levels of documents where you have one that is just like a memory tool. checklist that's very short like maybe six items and then you'll have those six items sort of more explained about not just the how but also a bit of the why but then you'll have a separate document where it's like insane amount of detail but we don't have (laughs) that. it's a lot of work to build us so yeah
0: yeah i I think even like a change log like you can keep your your source document fine you know just the six steps you need but then having a change log that's like hey on you know september 2nd i changed it f- from this to this because i'm fixing this problem because I, I know i've definitely yeah in past jobs thought that i'm improving the process by changing it only to realize that like 15 years ago they changed it to that for a specific reason that none of us knew and nobody right. you know nobody who worked there anymore knew and then all of a sudden that that issue came back up
1: yeah
2: yeah I think on the short term also, the morning meeting is really effective because we've sort of started talking about what improvements we made and sort of the thinking behind it. And even if you don't cover everything, I think it starts building this confidence that if some SOP seems a little, uh, I don't know, uh, indirect or like added steps or weird steps that you don't quite understand, I think it builds confidence that there's thought been put in behind it. That's not to say you shouldn't change it, but you should at least go talk to someone about. Yeah, what was this fixing? But I like the idea of a change log because that's sort of low friction, and at least the data is sort of captured, and you can go read it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, um, I sort of have a belief. I'm not sure if this applies everywhere, but I sort of wanna believe believe that most like genuinely good imp- improvements are somewhat self propagating because they should be the easiest and most effective way to do something um obviously that doesn't work everywhere and there are plenty of things that are counterintuitive um in our shop we i i wouldn't say we've like put a good process in place yet to continue this um as as we grow so that's something else for us to think about right now we're a very small team tends to be that anything we implement um comes out of a group discussion like one hmm. of us might uh kind of bring the spark or the concept, but we usually discuss, discuss possible implementation routes before we do it, especially for anything big. Um, so yeah, I think kind of morning meeting scrums is a good way just to kind of like go over it. And then it should be, if it's a, you know, down the line, it seems like just having it be part of the training is, is key, but, um, yeah, I don't know if I have a good a really good answer for that. I think this is definitely a work in progress for us both. Yeah. And in terms
2: of not putting in effort to things that don't pan out, my big fear, even more so after talking to other people who are sort of further down this road, is putting a lot of time into documentation and then they become stale and no one bothers updating them. And so then they're just like a bunch of crap hanging around your shop that's actually not the current method. And it's so much work that you've put into all that documentation that you, you kind of don't want to go update it and i don't know so like for us maybe like some of the documents we've made we laminate and then just have a dry erase marker there so at least like updates get captured and then once it gets cluttered enough we'll go do an update another thing on our list is adding qr codes to the bottom of documents so that you can immediately scan it and jump right back into that document so you're not wasting time like you know, where was this stored? Where was this SOP to edit it? Um, so, just trying to reduce the friction of making updates, I think, is like high on our list so that they don't become stale. Like, that's my big worry is just doing a lot of documentation for the sake of it. And then it's like not actually how people are doing things. Yeah. I, I do also for think it sure so
0: happens.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think systems where people are sort of like siloed. Um, are more prone to issues maybe too. I think if, yeah. if you have a system where there's a lot of handoffs between individuals for a complete process to happen, um, there's sort of a lot more checks and balances built into the system. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> whereas, you know, I kind of like going to maybe to like the prototype versus, uh, versus like a, a large, you know, prototype sort of environment where one person handles everything from like opening a part file to finishing and packing a part like there's a lot more room in that system for someone to just kind of find their own way to do it and not document it. Whereas like if one person quotes it and then hands it off to another person who programs it and hands it off to another person who sets it up, who hands it off to another person who runs it, who hands it off to another person (laughs) who ships it, like those handoffs sort of, um, it it just, I guess it becomes really obvious very quickly when those systems break down. And so they, I think it's easier to maintain them because it's a requirement. Hmm. I don't know. That's a theory of mine. I haven't borne that out, and
0: haven't <laughs> haven't run a I control experiment. <laughs> right. but... Yeah. Uh, let's see. Debris brooms asked, "Are there any Smed or Lean principles you guys can't get behind?" Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know if I'm. <laughs> I feel like I'm very much like at the beginning of this whole journey, and uh, throwing. I don't know. Mm. It's kind of like they've been doing this a long time. I'm not ready to throw anything under the bus based on my like very kind of like toddler perspective. Um I would
2: 100% agree with that. In fact, I think every book I've read there's aspects that I do not understand how it makes sense at all. And like talking it through with other people, it's just like this really doesn't make sense. And then a few months later, once you've implemented other aspects of the general approach it becomes clear like why that need exists and why it's not just like added labor added i don't know you know expense time all that stuff so and then i think if you zoom all the way out of like away from all the tools that are sort of documented in a lot of these books and actually read the whole book there's a big emphasis on like this is not a set of tools this is not a set of things you should do this is an approach to solving problems that has been incredibly effective and this is what these are the tools that have come out of that way of thinking for this particular manufacturer or in this particular um business like toyota here everyone thinks about cars but um, in Japan, yeah. they build homes like all kinds of stuff. They do textiles, so
1: yeah, I think um, I, probably any one of the principles or 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 smet, yeah, smet is one of the principles or one of the tools. I guess I think if you were to use any one of them, sort of like exclusively or without balancing them against the other principles, you're going to have a sort of a bad solution. And if you don't try and apply them to your particular process. There's probably gonna be a lot of things that go wrong. So kind of tagging on to what Ariel just said, like, yeah, it's, uh, I, have come away from this as being like, it's a philosophy first, or it's an approach, maybe a philosophical approach that's fairly all encompassing. And then a lot of things are born out from that. And then you have to apply those specifically to your situation. And in that process, you're going to work out the kinks.
2: Yeah. And one piece, I guess, I think if you kind of look at the approach, I think the thing it really changed for me in terms of like opening my eyes to are some of the, global efficiencies that can be achieved at the price of local efficiencies and that i was less aware of and spent less time thinking of like it's really easy to dive into a particular uh, station or operation and go like how can i shave all the like excess motion out of this or any of this other stuff um but it's a little bit harder or, or less obvious to just go like how quickly does a piece of material transform from a raw material to shipped goods? Um, I don't know all this stuff. And I think like sort of focusing more on the global and less on the local optimums, um, was a shift and, uh, yeah, anyway. So I think like okay. focusing on that is always good. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes
1: sense for sure. And also, we're just like hundred percent not experts. We're just like <laughs> yeah, that too trying
0: real hard. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think like you guys kind of touched on it that it's it's a way of thinking and not a instruction guide. Like it's like you know what a lot of people say about college that like you go to a job after college and there's they say great you learned how to learn. That's what we really care about. Yeah. Right. And like, it's, I think it's very similar to like Smed and lean and the Toyota way and stuff where it's like, now, you know, how to think globally and how to think about your problems correctly, not maybe this specific thing that we did in our factory.
2: Totally. And I would say to the point of not being experts, if you is just reading those books, like the level of training that Toyota people go through before internally, they're considered even competent is pretty mind-blowing. And so I think anyone who's been doing this stuff for less than like 10 to 20 years and is like, here are the answers for your organization. Um, run away? I don't know about <laughs> run away. Like, I've gotten a lot of value from people's content who are, I would say are sort of in that camp, yeah. but maybe are misrepresenting uh, how much... Mm, I don't know. Not throw anyone on their bus. I think like people... Like there is still great value in people who are. I mean, I I hope we're adding value, even though we're pretty much at the beginning of this, just by bringing up the concepts and exploring them and wrestling with them. But I think if I said like, oh, I'm a lean expert and here's where I'm going to help you implement Kanban in your shop and please pay me, I don't
0: know, I would have some questions. <laughs> right, they're they're representing themselves as a master and not as a learner who's just further ahead than you yeah maybe that's it yeah yeah
1: or toyota might argue that you're always a learner
0: <laughs> yeah well, yeah yeah i don't know it, yeah um, all right hudson made asked what seemingly small improvement had the largest unforeseen benefit for you guys hmm. um reading the toyota production system <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh Yeah, I don't know.
0: So I'll share one of mine um, because another question I had was, what's the most expensive improvement and cheapest improvement? And my Mm -hmm. cheapest improvement was these fiberglass bins that Easton turned me onto for material storage. Oh, yeah. And so we went from like a material shelf that was just like, I I had so much material on the shelf, but it was so disorganized that every time a new order came in, I would just buy new material from McMaster, even if I probably had something on the shelf because it's like, I'm going to spend right 30 minutes looking for this and like now all of our aluminum which is most of what we do is divided up by thickness of the bar and like i would say maybe 80 percent or 70 percent of the orders that come through now we can just walk over there and be like yep we got it or no we don't but like we we know specifically that we do or don't
1: that's fantastic um yeah i would say um hand like distributing some of the workload in the shop and sort that's tied into this recent like job board thing that we've done. But um, yeah, as, as like kind of the business owner, administrator, et cetera, um, handing off tool purchasing and material purchasing was, I, I had no idea how much time it was kind of sucking, sucking up for me. Um, and then going from our online uh, software-based job management, um, I mean, we're still using it a little bit, but going from that to this physical board on the wall was fairly transformative and cost very little, very little money. And we're just much more effective all of a sudden.
2: Awesome. Um, I have a few. One is uh, color coding has been absolutely huge in the shop Um, in terms of organization, in terms of just mental load in the shop. um, That was definitely a big one. Yeah, and the unforeseen part there was definitely the mental load aspect, I would say. Um, I had another one that I'm forgetting. Cheap improvements. Um, yeah, or just small.
0: Thing. I mean, it could have been a, a $10,000 tiny little piece of something, but what's, what's a small improvement? <laughs> As it often like is a, in our business. Well, I mean. Yeah, seriously.
2: Yeah, if we're talking $10,000, the gripper. um for us moving to part automation instead of like huge pallets or or just higher, you know, part density work holding. Um, That was transformative. And the unforeseen part there, it wasn't entirely unforeseen, but the level of, that that it bore out out to um, was just uh, basically that prototyping, like the shift from prototyping to actual production is is really effortless at this point, and like effortless might sound like an exaggeration, but basically, your prototyping process is so tightly coupled to production that it actually like the end of your prototyping process, you have refined the production tooling, right? Like your your work holding, like sometimes you have to modify the soft jaws a little because you needed clearance you didn't expect and. That is all done in the prototyping process. And so at the end, you have a highly producible part that doesn't require another big lift and like fixture design and all this other stuff. You just like basically program the gripper, which takes like realistically, you know, 25 minutes to get everything plugged in and then another like probably half an hour to be comfortable
0: about (laughs) that it's doing
2: everything (coughs) it should be doing. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. All right, uh, five best purchases from the last year. So not improvements. Well, I mean, they they can be improvements, but specifically things you have bought that you are happy you bought in the last year. Um, I mean, I could list five books.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The books have been super helpful. Well, what's the the best book out of the last year? Ooh, that is a tough one. They're all very good. Hmm. I mean, a study of the Toyota production system I thought was very good from Shiju Shingo um smed was more mind-blowing i would say also Shiji shingo um i just read a book designing the future that i really enjoyed but is maybe a little bit less applicable it's more on the RD side um, but that applies to developing new processes also
1: how about you <laughs> um <clears throat> it's not technically in the last year but our auto saw was a was a big improvement that uh, kind of this actually sort of falls in the unforeseen benefits. Like we got it because we were having like our, our old manual saw was like an actual bottleneck. Having looked back, we probably could have improved it a little bit and made it less so, but instead we bought an auto saw um, thinking that mostly it was to reduce that bottleneck, but kind of the largest improvement was um just process reliability because it cuts so square and everything's exactly the same size and there's never any question that it's like correct and just is what it's supposed to be um so that had a lot of downstream effects as well as being able to handle um titanium jobs a lot more like cost effectively because we weren't having to outsource the sawing and it was a lot easier to source material so that was a that was a really big one honestly um and then Similarly, like the buying the gripper and the shunk pneumatic vices was also technically not in the last year, but just, just passed. But that was a big eye opener and it's kind of like started me down a whole road that I probably wouldn't be on otherwise.
2: Awesome. Um, Our screw compressor is really high on the list as well. I sort of forgot about
0: that. Yeah, I bet that that's like such a quality of life improvement when you stop hearing the Pistons just like banging against your head all day.
2: Definitely that. But also we had these crappy little compressors. I mean, they're not crappy. I was so impressed that they ran under the conditions <laughs> so we put them in. Um, they're little California air compressors. And I think they're rated at 25% uh, cycle time out of an hour. Oh, geez. Um we were running them basically <laughs> flat out all day long.
0: Um, to the point where
2: I redirected the like auto drain to spray water onto the cylinder heads.
0: And then oh I had a fan God. to cool them. Um, but they would still
2: overheat all the time. And then I was like, is this anyway? It was it was not good. And then last summer it was just like got to a point where it was such a variable of whether we'd be able to run production that I was like, this is not viable. So,
0: yeah. (laughs) Uh, well, I'll go for a couple of them. Um, the sending our post editing out has been amazing. Like Mm. just having somebody, I can just fire off an email on, you know, Friday afternoon and be like, Hey, I need, uh, let's start exploring this. And -hmm. then I get a rough, a rough draft like the next week. Yeah. Uh, that milwaukee backpack vacuum has like our shop has never been cleaner i think i've used it probably almost every day um since i got it
1: because it's just easy like i I
0: hated our shop i hated our shop vac so much because like it was always either tangled up in cords or like we had one of those uh oneida dust deputies on it and Mm -hmm. like that made it top heavy and so it was a pain to move around and like it, it was enough of a pain that it made cleaning a pain and so like we just didn't do it and like now that this thing like i bought the fast cap little backpack uh mount and so it's just right there on the wall i just put it on real quick throw a battery in it hit the whole shop before i go home um like i liked it enough that i bought one for my house because i was like i hate (laughs) nice cords like having a cordless vacuum is just where it's at Um, so i I definitely thank the uh the, the guys over at jack's manufacturing for or jack's precision for that
2: yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm thinking I might buy one after this podcast. <laughs> They've been on my list for a
1: while. I've been dubious yeah, it, just because I love sweeping, but I know that that's not a. Oh, that's not I don't like kicking up continue. the dust. Yeah, we don't have so much dust. It's mostly just a lot of chips.
2: For us, we are like the entry to the shop is is sort of this like crushed gravel, and I think it gets tracked in a good deal, huh. which is kind of frustrating. Yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting. I could see that being really frustrating. uh Our probably our optical comparator is another one that i I had been wanting an optical comparator for years now, and I finally found the brand I wanted on eBay and got it. And like it was one of those things that Brad was like, "I don't really see us needing this." And then uh, I think <laughs> like a week ago, he was like, "How did we ever get by without this?" Like, yeah, that's awesome.
1: Oh, actually, that reminds me, we just got that Mitutoyo height gauge, and that being. That's been pretty sweet. It's definitely not like uh, we're not using it like every five minutes, but when we need it, it's pretty fantastic.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly how we feel about the OC. Like it's one of those things like, yeah, you don't use it maybe every day, but there's no other way to inspect some of the features we've done on it. It's like, oh, this is this is the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, paperless is another one. That I'm really happy we bought into like there's been some quote packages in the last I don't know it's almost been a year I think since we started down that rabbit hole uh that like would have just taken me hours and hours and hours to get out and now they're 15 minutes 20 minutes yeah I am
1: I'm like teetering upon the fence (laughs) (laughs) to to jump in on on that there's a few like workflow issues I think we need to handle like primarily how we're going to handle the downstream um outflow Mm -hmm. but it's uh yeah it's making in terms of what in terms of like the internal job management with the data that comes out of paperless and just kind of like boring (laughs) nitty-gritty like not wanting to hand like ohio they'll only handle it once right like uh because we are running a uh kind of multi-person handoff system that makes sense um i really want to make sure that anything that comes out of there doesn't have to be edited or like there's no question that it's correct um, so yeah, anyway, that's, that's a story for another day. Cause it doesn't exist yet,
0: but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I it, data management in general is very tough to do correctly. Yeah.
1: There's one, yeah. An aspect of it that I, um, that seems like really key that a lot of people don't seem to prioritize for some reason is like. Yeah, it sort of ties into what we were talking about earlier, but just like making sure it stays current um, and like the easiest. We, we dealt with this with our ERP system that we have that was built in Airtable where you could template a job so that if the job repeated, um, it would repopulate with all of the stuff you did last time, which is great. Except the mm-hmm. way that it was set up, it would repopulate with the original, not with the most recent. So if you made edits, because we're constantly improving our approach and how we do things, those wouldn't be carried forward. Um, and oh, it was weird. this major, <laughs> It's just like, this is, <laughs> this is mind-numbingly stupid. <laughs> um, and yeah, you know, well, similarly, like G-code management, like you kind of have to figure out a good system so that there's no question that whatever the code is in the file is the correct one, no workarounds, et cetera. So, yeah, it's a big, right, it's yeah, big thing. Right, yeah, for sure.
0: Well, I, I did see Paperless Parts updated two days ago, three days ago, that they have historical order import now to quotes. Oh. So you oh, can go cool. back to your most recent order of that and then say, bring this into my new, my new quote. Oh, very
1: cool. Was it before yeah. it was just kind of like, pick one?
0: <laughs> uh, Before, I don't think you could directly bring that quote item into your new quote. You had uh, to like... Go look at the old one and bring your numbers in manually And oh, didn't just it. say like this is the same thing bring it in let's do it gotcha okay oh, yeah, that's a huge uh, improvement yeah <laughs> wow yeah well we kind of already talked about shop news and new things uh anything you guys want to touch on that you're pretty happy about that you're doing
1: hmm there has been a lot going on uh um, gone yeah um, I
2: don't know. We, we mentioned we were doing a podcast. I don't know. Did we mention the name of the podcast? I <laughs> forget. Uh,
0: I think I said it, but if not, oh, cool. please plug it because I, it, it'll be in the show notes too. I'll tag awesome. both yeah, so your it's... guys' individuals on the podcast. Oh, sweet.
2: Yeah. Uh, incremental, the continuous improvement podcast. Um, that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. The conversations have been a lot of fun from that. So that's, yeah, I'd say that's up there
1: um, yeah. with recent projects uh yeah the stuff i've been working on is not super sexy <laughs> it's mostly been kind of this job management data flow like internal organization stuff um it has been massively like effective so that's cool but talking about it is kind of boring <laughs> hmm. um so that that's kind of our yeah our main goal is streamlining i've been also working with a guy to, to do post editing um that has there's more to do, but that's been pretty, pretty awesome. And I think we're on the brink of, uh, being able to smoothly implement rotary fixture offset probing straight out of cam. So I, I'm not going to speak too soon cause I haven't actually <laughs> had a chance to test it yet, but we're like very close. Um, yeah, that'll be killer. Yeah. It'll be a major workflow enhancement, like just having to, not have variability between fourth axis and three axis jobs and how we set them up and probe them will be a big deal. Um, the R-50, R-450 is just awesome. Like everybody should just buy one basically. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely want a few more. That and a point. Milwaukee backpack vacuum. Yeah. <laughs> <You> <laughs> Highly use, recommend. Yeah, no. Use the backpack vacuum to clean up all the chips. That you'll there be you making. go. So many chips. Yeah.
2: Um, we are... Well, we've started shipping a new product, so that's very exciting. It's not on the website yet, but I feel like this is my third time on this podcast, and every time I've said, like, <laughs> we're about to release a new product, uh, we actually are shipping it, and uh, so that's exciting. Um, yeah, not on the website yet. Guess, um, right now, it's mostly for bag makers and less like, interesting to like direct-to-consumer, but soon we're working on a press so that you can retrofit it to existing bags without doing any sewing so is that the d hook or um this is a ladder lock so it's the piece of hardware at the at the end of your shoulder strap on a backpack
0: oh okay cool
1: yeah very cool because you had some bag makers who are using your standard cam locks right but it's kind of like bringing a gun to a knife fight
2: um i would
1: say (laughs) it's it's still useful there
2: (laughs) because the issue with a ladder lock is it relies on constant tension to maintain position uh-huh. so if you just repeatedly load and unload a ladder lock i don't care who made the ladder lock just inherently um it will shift mm-hmm. so like if you're running with a backpack or backpacking just normal every now and then you sort of have to do one of those like re moves yeah um so it's still useful from that perspective but these ones basically uh the angle of that the webbing exits the hardware is uh makes more sense um for that application so if you're not if you're not running with the backpack uh maybe it is bring a gun to the fight. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's still like the load capacity is huge and i have slammed it in car doors a bunch to I wouldn't recommend it because if you care about your car <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm going to get a video of that scientific testing <laughs> <Yeah>. bam, bam. <laughs> like that still holds.
0: yeah. oh boy alrighty so well that brings me to the last question I ask every guest every week and actually now I have two questions I just started it on my last episode but we'll start with what did you research this week
1: um, I am researching how to pour foundation footers <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're about to start building a house and uh i'm gonna have to do a lot of the work myself (laughs) so uh yeah we uh we have a little mini excavator so i spent the last couple weeks digging and well digging yeah (laughs) no other way to say that um and (laughs) prepping to start pouring uh forms and stuff as soon as we are making forms to pour as soon as we get our permit approvals and whatnot it's exciting awesome
2: Um, I've been researching robotic arms quite a bit, um, paint systems. And then also as a morbid curiosity that I can't, uh, (laughs) avoid, um, closed die forging. (laughs) Um, So the reason this is funny is because Devin and I, I've, I've called Devin about this a few times and to discuss and. The consensus is definitely that it makes no sense to uh, pursue at this stage, um, And but here I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the interesting piece there that I will mention, um, the tonnage I'll need, I'm not quite sure exactly, but it's pretty high. Um, so I don't really want to dive into that, but a way that I can sort of scratch the itch without spending a ton of money or time is you can freeze like, uh, clay, oil, oil clay, like plastiline, and it simulates hot metal, um, or just reduced tonnage, um, with cold metal, like the way it flows. And so I think I'm just going to start by 3d printing molds to start to understand about, to, to start to understand like how it will move inside a mold, how many pre like, die closes you because you can like do some preforming to get the material into a general shape you want before finishing the die i'm also curious about like basically pre my suspicion is like preforming then forming then punching out your windows and everything and then doing one last die close could get you really high precision um there's this thing called high precision forging, um, where we're like auto parts, they're making gears that don't need any post-processing, which is insane. Um, and that's basically getting your material volume dead on to do a last forging where the die fully closes. And so you've dealt with your flash, um, and you also have the right amount of volume to like force the metal into all the corners of your cavity. Um, but I'm thinking there's a good amount of, you know, feel to that and and knowledge to get it right. So I figure 3D printing and plastiline are going to be a lot cheaper than buying like a 200 ton press and, and starting to mess with it and,
0: you know, cutting so is tool this, steel. And is this coming from eliminating machining or increasing strength or both? or Yeah, both. Where where did this? Okay.
2: So basically I was, you know, again, every time I'm on the podcast talking about getting another CNC, um, and I'm still talking about it, um, to increase capacity. And it occurred to me that with that amount of cash, um, trying to think about, are there other ways of spending that cash that would be a more efficient way to increase capacity and forging, you know, those presses are not as expensive as CNC's. And so if it eliminated, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent of cycle times, then that would be a huge win. And then there's the added factor of the strength um, and just the cost that we could offer the buckles at, I think, um, would be improved. Um, I don't know how much exactly because there would be some post machining and tooling costs and whatever. So but more than that, I think. once I thought about it, it was just hard to get it out of my head. <laughs> um, uh, that, and then also lean product development. I've been doing a lot more reading on that and, um, super interesting stuff. Um, a lot of it stuff I'm already doing. Like I sort of had a, a bit of a career in product development for different startups. And, um, turns out this is why I kept getting work because, <laughs> uh, I was doing a lot of those, 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 pieces but um really interesting to learn more about it and just sort of hear it very clearly articulated and the reduction in in waste and cost um associated with some of those practices are are pretty useful especially if you're then trying to have a conversation with a client about why you are doing stuff the way you are because some of it sort of defers perceived progress i would say um
0: anyway so that's been a lot of fun Awesome. That's great. Uh, Well, then the other question that I am now asking is what are you working on to be a better person, leader, employee, any or all of the above? Hmm. Um,
2: I would say a big focus of mine now that we've grown the team a little bit is trying to figure out how to create a culture of continuous improvement and then I sort of grew up in a funny family, I guess I'm realizing more and more, but, um, like problem solving was always something we talked a lot about. And I think if you don't come from that, um, sort of developing and educating people, um, so that they can do that effectively has really been on my mind. Um, yeah. So like building a culture where, every single person has the know-how to implement and see like see problems and then implement effective solutions I think is going to take a a substantial amount of concerted effort and letting people fail but not letting them fail too much (laughs) as in yeah so I've been thinking a lot
1: about that yeah I would say um my my main focus right now as the leader, employer, et cetera, et cetera, is um, making sure that my people have what they need um, to do their job and that they're not, you know, a- I'm asking that on a regular basis um, to do their job. And also just to be happy in the shop. Um, and then one of my goals for the next next little while is to really tackle, you know, compensation in a, in a fair way and, um, as well as, you know, we just had a conversation last week where I was like, I don't want you guys to leave just because of money or something like that. So let's like, let's, let's map out a, a roadmap for, for the business and you guys to get to where you need to be happy here and for it also to be meeting your financial goals for the rest of your life. Um, and that's a big, that's a big drive for my business is making sure that we're all taken care of well. Um, so yeah, and you know that's that's simple stuff for a business my scale of just being like, okay, what does it look like for us to start doing paid time off and um, uh, and sick leave? Like, you know, that's something I just I don't know what to do, <laughs> so <laughs> let's figure out how to make it happen. Um, and then, yeah, just trying to be uh, really transparent and open about um, you know, kind of on the daily of what what they need and making sure everybody's happy and enjoying themselves at work and, um, and also just trying to invest a lot in things that make their lives better in the shop and easier, uh, to that end. I think we're probably gonna buy a chip back here pretty soon because (laughs) Ariel looks like she's about ready to quit every time we have a, have an issue, which is understandable. Um, uh, i could definitely yeah.
0: empathize with that
1: <laughs> yeah yeah you know and there's part of you know as like the whatever solo entrepreneur somewhere, you're like ah whatever i used to get up in there and have my you know elbows <laughs> deep in a bunch of coolant and it's kind of like well this ain't her business <laughs> she doesn't have to be here <laughs> let's
0: make even it. in my own business there's nothing that makes me think like maybe i made the wrong choice <laughs> as like a big coolant spill or like having to clean out a sump that i've let go too long you're like man, is this where the, this is all led? Like, is this what I need to be doing?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, I will say the R450 goes through coolant um, at a staggering pace. Really? Yeah. I mean, it just runs like nine hours a day without stopping for more than two seconds at a time. So it's like, it's <laughs> it's just, it's moving chips and it's moving coolant. Interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. And That's so nuts. the uh, the sump filled up with chips much faster than we anticipated. So we were getting like, yeah, it was doing the thing where it like sucks dry when it's running the washdown and the coolant. And we're right. like, what the heck? It's freaking full. And we're like, oh, it's full of chips.
2: So it's funny you say that. Cause you figured it wasn't chips buildup because of your experience on the on the other machines. On the yeah. other machines. So when I started using probing regularly for production, I thought my probe had broken. And then you were like did you change your batteries? And I was like, well, no, <laughs> <laughs> but I just changed them. Like, I don't forget what it was, but like two months ago. Yeah. But now
0: I'm probing a lot. And so it runs through them quickly.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, not only that, and you can also have a probe tip loose, which has bitten me once <laughs> both on the probe and then indicator tips fairly frequently haven't just bitten me in the past. Huh? Why is this indicating so poorly? And then you like, check your tip and you're like oh it's got three threads out it's like (laughs) wobbling in there almost cool
1: on the r machine recently we had it was like kind of this ongoing saga of getting it up and running and there was you know there was the the uh expanded jig area issue and all this stuff and then i started i think i maybe sent you a photo of it but we put this job on there and i was like god damn it like the probes messed up like what is it going to be next on this machine (laughs) and it turned out that we had gotten some I'd ordered some titanium. I'd opted to get it pre-sawn because they were gonna charge me the same either, either way. And I was like, whatever, I'll just get it pre-sawn. I don't have to deal with it. They were sawing these blanks so out of square that when I probed the like some random spot oh, no. visually, uh, I'd get one value. And then when the machine probed it, it would get another value. And because there wasn't a lot of stock to work with, that lower value meant that it like cut the top of the vice jaws. Oh, it's just geez. like, I just assumed that something terrible was happening with the pro, but it was just the fact that the stock was like 60,000s out over like two inches. Jeez. Oh, yeah. It that sounds like me on my manual bandsaw. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> pretty not much. good at all. Pretty much. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh boy. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. Uh, one more time, let everybody know where they can find you and the podcast and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, Devin at Lycan underscore MFG. The podcast is incremental dot CI. No. No dot. No dot incremental, incremental C-I. CI. On Instagram. On Instagram. Yeah. And then I am Uriel
2: Eisen um on Instagram, austere underscore manufacturing.
0: And uh yeah, drop us a line.
1: Absolutely. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you both again. Thanks to all the Patreon members who make this show possible. And thank you for listening. I'll be back next week.